0: Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podla. This week, more fractions within the GOP. Again, over issues involving former President Donald Trump and the 2020 election. As the legislative session steams ahead, several significant bills have already died in committee. Instead of a legislative update this week, we'll have a legislative obituary. Cracking down on repeat offenders, we'll talk with the Seattle City Attorney about what she plans to do to change the culture in her office. And two of the most progressive members of the Seattle City Council get into a verbal altercation, forcing a third to step in. But first, we've been talking about this effort to rebuild the Seattle Police Department by hiring more officers. They're down several hundred, as it is, from what they want to be at, or at least from what the chief wants it to be at. But it appears that the city doesn't have the money to pay hiring or retention bonuses. Breaking this story was Fox 13 News' political reporter Matt Markovich, who joins us now on the Politicast. And what exactly
1: is going on here? A lot of head-scratching right now at City Hall. How could this possibly happen where you advertise bonuses up to $25,000 hiring bonuses for people from other departments to come over to the Seattle Police Department, and then you find out there's actually no money to pay that bonus right now? And that comes from Lisa Herbal, who is the chairman of the Public Safety Committee, which oversees uh, the Seattle Police Department. So what, how do we get to this mess? So what happened was all throughout 2021, there have been advertised bonuses to bring people over to the Seattle Police Department. And there were $10,000, $15,000 for your lateral hire, $10,000 for your new hire. But then, as you know, Jeff, and we've been talking about this all year, that the the, the, the The rank and file at the South Police Department has been going down tremendously. Over the last two years, the department has lost a net 225 officers over a period of two years. That includes all the people who have been hired and all the people who have left. So they're down 225 entering 2022. Seeing that, then Mayor Jenny Durkin on October 29th issued an emergency order basically saying that we are upping the ante raising the incentive bonuses to bring people over to $25,000 if you're a lateral hire and have experience and $10,000 if you're a new hire. How it works is this. The city council had 48 hours to act on that emergency order. Well, they got the order, but then they didn't act on it. And by not acting on it, that means by default, it kind of goes into effect. Well, here comes 2022. On the day before Durkin leaves office, she sends a letter to Bruce Harrell, the new mayor, saying, you know what about these bonuses? I, we have this emergency order I have. But, you know, the way our legal department reads it is that it's still in effect. Although to be sure, Bruce, you may want to just issue your own order to have this incentive bonus raised to $25,000 and have this money appropriated. Well, Bruce never did that. He didn't issue his own order. We entered in the new year. SPD continued advertising uh, across the country of these hiring bonuses. Well, it turns out in 2022, that money wasn't there. Man.
0: So what's it going to take? The city council stepping in and, and allocating money?
1: Yep, absolutely. Lisa Herbolt emailed me uh, saying uh, she wasn't aware that they had continued advertising these bonuses when she said the council never appropriated money for that. And the assumption by an email from Bruce Harrell's office to me was that the money was there and it was there to be able to pay bonuses. So there was a miscommunication between the new mayor and the city council over this. And as you know, Jeff, city council controls all the funds in the city and has to make authorizations for something like this. And Lisa Herbolt says, nope, there's no money there. The SPD pulled down the advertisements for the bonuses off their recruiting website. And that's where we sit. We're one of those departments that has a tremendous need for officers with big incentive bonuses, and all around us other departments are competing for that same officer, and now of Seattle has no money to offer them.
0: And the budget's already been set for 2022, hasn't it? That's
1: correct. So it there's, there's
0: really, they can't they do anything until 2023.
1: Well, I would think they could make, I mean, the city council can carve out some money, maybe somehow on a supplemental budget, but as of right now, uh, this huge <laughs> incentive push to bring in officers and dangling them with all this money, it's just not there. It's an empty promise.
0: Wow. We'll have to see where that goes. Uh, We were talking with Matt Markovich, Fox 13 News political reporter. And the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is last week we discussed Governor Inslee's bill that would make it a crime to lie about election results, particularly the 2020 election results, where we've seen all sorts of false claims fly about, particularly from President Trump and his allies. Well... The governor's office didn't particularly like our coverage of it, saying it was uh, too oversimplified. But the one clarification that they wanted us to make, and, and in fairness to the governor's office, we'll make that clarification right now, that the law applies only to elected officials, and these lies about election results must be made with the intent to incite lawlessness. So it is that intent that is what makes it illegal But still, Matt, I would argue that's going to be a very high bar to clear when you're trying to litigate someone's intent in court.
1: You're exactly right, Jeff. I mean, if you go to a case and let's just say for the sake of argument and an elected official lies about election result, tells somebody about it and says and tells that person you need to do something about that. And that person then jumps the fence at the governor's mansion and gets arrested. And that person says, you know, I was told to do that by that elected official. It, you could just see the, the pitfalls in that argument right there and how that would hold up in court. Uh, having elected officials saying, well, I never told him to go jump the fence at the, at the mayor's mansion. I just told him to do something about it. I mean, I mean, I'm making that up, but that's a, actually a good idea, a good, an, a good story to, to follow whether or not this case or this uh, law is actually wise and whether we really need it. So with the governor's office actually asking us to make that clarification, Yes, that's true. But just think about that. That's such a narrow casting uh, of, a, of a law aimed at the intent to try and incite a riot. Obviously, it's just targeting what happened on January 6th in D.C. and what happened here in Washington State When on that same day. People did jump the fence of the mayor's. Uh, excuse me, of the of the governor's mansion in protest because of what was happening in D.C.
0: Well, and, and as we talked about last week and as was pointed out by the governor's office uh, again in their email to us, uh, the governor's office worked with two of the country's leading scholars on First Amendment issues in crafting the bill. And we mentioned the the constitutional lawyers with expertise in the First Amendment uh, uh, last week with whom they worked, but really it's not their opinion that matters because one way or the other, if this law passes, I can pretty much guarantee you it's going to be challenged, and so it's going to be the legal opinion of the justices of the state Supreme Court.
1: And as you know, these cases come down to that one word, and you know what this word is going to be, intent. Did the elected official intend to incite? somebody to jump the fence at the governor's mansion in our example you know that's one of those words that is like reasonable what's a reasonable suspicion it's a highly debated very contentious word in the in courts and to throw that in this and to murky up this legislation let's put it this way jeff you know i know that the intent of this legislation is not about washington state it's governor inslee showcasing what he wants to do with his state on a national stage and how he would combat somebody like president trump if that situation were to arise again saying look what we did in our state he's playing to an audience outside of washington state and i think that's the real intent here to use that word again
0: (laughs) all right fox 13 news political reporter matt markovich thank you so much for your time
1: You're welcome.
0: All right. When we come back, we'll take a look at some of the failed legislative efforts in Olympia this session, where the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poe Well, the legislative session continues to run in full swing, and we've already seen the first few deadlines and the first few bills that have shall we say, died in committee. Now, writing for the Washington Observer is the editor there, Paul Query. He had a list this past week on some of the bills that had died. He joins us now on the Northwest Newsline. And, well, first off, what are some of the more controversial or significant bills that uh, didn't make it past that first hurdle?
2: I think that the biggest thing that, um, that didn't make it past that hurdle was a big piece of the governor's climate agenda this year. It was a bill that would have required natural gas companies to essentially stop serving new customers and to gradually wean their customers off of gas. This is part of a broader push uh, by the governor and his allies in the environmental community um, to get gas out of buildings um, because that's one of the major sources of carbon emissions now. And it's considered a, you know, once you build a building, with gas heat and gas water heat in it, it tends to just sit there and produce carbon for kind of a long time. And so that's a big emphasis right now. There was a big omnibus bill on this subject that died at the deadline last year. Um, and I wrote a piece on in the Observer about it. Um, this year, it was just that one piece that was focused on the gas um, companies. And there's three or so other pieces aimed at getting at that policy that are still moving. Elsewhere um there was a big push by one of the major trade associations in the in the marijuana industry to kind of overhaul the liquor and cannabis board which is the agency that regulates them um that was you know played out was kind of controversial played out in the news tribune's editorial page Um, And that bill died at the deadline. Um, So there's not going to be a new and expanded liquor and cannabis board this year. anyway. What about Republican
0: bills? Because I imagine every year this time, the Republicans or whichever party is in the minority has quite a few bills that die.
2: Yeah. And this I mean, there are a lot of ideas. You know, the minority doesn't get a lot of love in Olympia or really in any state house. Um, And a lot of their bills die. It's because they don't have a lot of support from majority Democrats. and But also many of those bills tend to be filed, you know, sort of specifically to make a point. For example, Representative Jesse Young is a conservative out um, who represents Gig Harbor in the Kitsap Peninsula. Um, he had a bill this year that would have automatically registered to vote anybody who bought a firearm. Um, and that you know, didn't really go anywhere
0: in committee. Um. Sort sort of the the Republican counterpoint to the motor voter registration drive that happened uh, yes. a few decades. Yeah, ago. I mean,
2: I, and I think it's pretty clear that Representative Young was trying to make a point with that bill and didn't have much expectation of passing.
0: So, so what else are we seeing coming out of of these committees? Is is there sort of a theme for the bills that they are shutting down, or for that matter, the bills that they are passing?
2: I think we're seeing some interesting stuff pass that hasn't moved in the in, in past years. There's a bill that would make it easier to repair your own iPhone and your own laptop. Um that, that died in previous years and it's moving. But I mean um, how, how
0: could we even enforce that as a state when iPhones and, and iPads, they're they're international company, you know, Apple is the one that's handling that. How how could one small state Enforce something like that.
2: Well, it's mostly just a question of um, requiring. And there's a big argument about that Um, there. You know, the companies, to the extent that they want this done at all, would prefer that it be done at the national level. Um, And so they're pushing for that. But it's mostly that that the state would require that the companies provide materials and manuals and software and so on and so forth to repair these devices to independent shops, which they, for the most part, that's it's pretty restrictive right now. There's a bill that would require that cities allow duplexes, triplexes, other other kinds of housing density in neighborhoods that are currently single-family homes only. Um, that's pretty hot-button issue in a lot of places, and it's died in past years, but it, it's Cleared the committees thus far and seems to have some momentum behind it this year.
0: So, and we've covered that in the past. Let's let's kind of dive into a little more detail on that particular bill. Would this say that no single family zoning would be allowed in any city over a certain population anywhere in Washington State? Is that am I understanding that correctly?
2: Uh, as I believe that I think that duplexes would be allowed pretty much anywhere uh, under this bill. There are some loopholes for. Um, cities that have already sort of zoned enough overall density in their cities. But in general, it's, you know, it's a pretty sweeping bill and there are a lot of cities that are fired up about it. And, and as the bill's written right now, I think it extends all the way down to cities of um Twenty thousand people or more, which is you know really most of the cities in the state. So, are we expecting that one to pass? I, it's got a lot of motion. Um, the governor's behind it this year, and he hasn't taken a huge interest in this in the past. Um, it's you know it's sort of become an issue that's associated. I mean, it's it it's aimed at housing affordability and kind of easing the housing crisis, but it's also got an environmental. Um, climate change component to it. And that, you know, the environmentalists like denser housing because it makes transit work better, less, you know, vehicle emissions, so on and so forth. So it's definitely got more, more momentum than it's had in the past. Um, but it's going to have opposition at every stage of the process.
0: One of the things that we are seeing come through committee a lot this year are these bills that sort of change the police reform laws that were passed last year in the wake of the George Floyd protests uh, that we saw. Many of these bills were authored by Senator Monk and Dingra, and now they're being changed quite a bit and the republicans are pushing for even more change are we expecting a lot of those changes we saw last year to be
2: repealed i think that you're going to see them changed i don't know if you're going to see a lot of repeal per se um i think that there's some you know kind of there's some consensus that some of those bills you know went a little further or had some impacts that weren't anticipated So I think you're but you're more likely to see revisions than repeals, I think.
0: So in the next few weeks, what are we expecting to see as this short legislative session kind of speeds towards a close?
2: Um, I think you'll see um, some budgetary bills, some spending bills. And the one that everyone should be paying attention to is the transportation package. And that is kind of new in the sense that it's an all Democrat package at the moment. Um, and it has no gas tax increase, which traditionally those packages have a gas tax increase. This year they're relying on a flood of new money from the Climate Commitment Act, which was the cap-and-trade bill that was passed last year to um, to sort of um, rein in large emitters of carbon. And that generates a tremendous amount of money that's specifically earmarked for kind of greening up the transportation system, if you will. So... That bill has a lot of transit spending, It has a lot of bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure um, and a lot of electrification for vehicles. So it's really a kind of a different transportation proposal than we've seen go this far in past years, because usually those, those proposals are primarily about building highways with gas tax money.
0: And budgetary items. This is not a budget year, but they are dealing with a, a capital budget. Are they expected to complete that work on time?
2: I think that you'll see. I don't know if we're going to see a huge capital budget this year, but I think you'll see some. You know, something in that vein. There's actually kind of a lot of money out there this year because there's a lot of federal infrastructure money and a lot of uh, stimulus money left over from. The COVID bills from last year. So I would expect to see them spend some significant money on a variety of things.
0: But no expectation of a special session to come to an agreement.
2: No, this is an election year and. I think that you'll see them steer clear of, you know, major tax increases and certainly have a special session, because, you know, as long as the legislature's in session, the members of the legislature can't raise money for their reelection campaigns. And so they they usually get out on time in the election year.
0: All right. Paul Query with the Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time and insight. I'm happy to be with you, Jeff. Thanks. When we come back, the Republican Party splits along Trumpian lines when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogla. Last week, we saw the Republican National Committee, the RNC, vote essentially to say... The January 6th riot and insurrection was legitimate political discourse and censure both Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for joining the Democrats in that House Select Committee that is investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Joining me now is John Wagner. He is a reporter for The Washington Post. And this seems like it's caused quite the division within the GOP.
3: Well, that's right. And I think, you know, the, the phrase you just mentioned, the legitimate political discourse is really at the, the center of this. Uh, there are clearly a lot of Republicans who are not happy with Cheney and Kinzinger for being part of the, the House Select Committee. But describing what happened on January 6th as a legitimate political discourse, uh, I think, has just struck a lot of people as a bridge too far.
0: How much of this is Rona McDaniel, the chair of the RNC?
3: Well, she's certainly been at the middle of it uh, as as the chairwoman, but she hasn't been, you know, she wasn't the driving force behind the resolution. It was uh, associates of, of Trump who are no doubt uh, doing that this at his behest. Well, we've seen this division within the
0: Republican Party ever since President Trump or former President Trump announced his candidacy back in 2015. Are we really expecting to see GOP members, the rank and file, to fall into line, or are they going to stick with President Trump?
3: Well, that's a, that's an awful good question. Uh, late this week, you know, we saw Senator McConnell, Majority Leader, or excuse, excuse me, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, criticized the RNC for for characterizing this as they did, and saying it's really not the role of the RNC to be uh, singling out members of the party for criticism because they have a different view on some issues. So I, I think this is going to continue to be uh, you know a point of, of fissure between you know the you know the strong backers of Trump and and other more traditional Republicans. <laughs> Does this have a chance at hindering
0: the GOP's ability to gain control of the House and Senate in the fall elections?
3: Uh, potentially it does. I think there are a lot of Republicans who will tell you that they're frustrated that this is what uh, you know they are talking about and what we are talking about. They'd much rather be talking about what they uh, believe to be is uh, President Biden's perceived failures. and. You know, every day that headlines about fighting among uh, Republicans, you know, dominate the headlines, it just makes it that much harder to get their message across. And and what about those two
0: members of the GOP that were centred, censured, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney? Of uh, we know at least uh, Mr. Kinzinger is not running for re-election.
3: No, but Liz Cheney is, and, and uh, former President Trump is is backing her her uh, primary opponent. But to this point, they're really you know they're they're not uh, backing down whatsoever. They're trying to you know wear the. Cent- as is a badge of honor and seem very committed to the work they're doing on this committee. And, uh, you know, Kinsinger in particular had some really tough words for Trump this week and, and you know, said he thinks he'll go down as one of the, the worst presidents in history, if, if, if not the worst.
0: Very little in Washington is done without a strategy and a thought behind it. And those of us who cover politics are probably some of the most cynical people in the world. And I say this because it kind of leads into my next question. Was there a strategy in this? Because if the RNC, which is really not elected by the populace at all, says one thing, and then those that face reelection this fall in the House and then some in the Senate push back, they look more reasonable by comparison. Is, is that sort of a, a cynical analysis of what's going on here?
3: I, I think you may be giving the party a little too much credit. Um, you know the the uh, RNC resolution was kind of drafted on the fly and there were some revisions right at the last minute before it was passed so I, I'm not sure that the, there was plotting to quite that extent. Uh, and there have been divisions between you know the House and the Senate in Washington. House members have been much more supportive of the RNC, while senators are, are taking uh, a slightly more uh, skeptical view of what's happened here.
0: What has been the response from former President Trump?
3: Well, I mean, he, he did go after uh, Mitch McConnell for, for uh, speaking out against the RNC. And he's, Trump has certainly been uh, critical of McConnell before, and it was, it was no different when he issued a statement this week uh, questioning his leadership on a range of issues in response to this, not just uh, McConnell's statement, uh, questioning the use of, of the term legitimate political discourse, and, and McConnell—excuse me, McConnell— also uh, made very clear that he didn't think it was the RNC's role to be singling out numbers like this. Are we expecting the RNC
0: to backpedal on this or, or change some of the language?
3: Uh, to this point, they've largely you know, blamed the media and others, saying that we've misinterpreted what, what the resolution said. But there's really been no backing down from from the action that was taken.
0: What are we expecting to see next from any wing of the Republican Party?
3: Well, I, th- I mean, I think this is, is going to uh, continue to be you know, a fissure that we see going forward into the midterm elections uh, in, in Georgia, for example, you have the incumbent Republican governor, Brian Kemp who's uh, facing David Perdue, a former U.S. senator backed by Trump. And Trump is angry with him because, in Trump's view, he didn't do enough to try to to overturn the presidential election results in Georgia. So that has really become the big issue in the governor's race in, in Georgia. And I think it's emblematic of a lot of these rifts that we're going to see in other ways in the coming months. All
0: right, John Wagner, reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you. Still to come, the new Seattle City attorney announces her
0: plans to crack down on street crime when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Republican Ann Davison was elected to the position of Seattle City Attorney last fall, defeating more progressive candidates, both incumbent Pete Holmes and challenger Nicole Thomas Kennedy. And she is taking the office in a much different direction. She joins us now on the Northwest Politicast. And I guess the first question I would put to you, Ms. Davison, is, how different is your office going to be than it has been in previous years?
4: Well, uh, I, I'm going to make sure that I run it the way that is uh, provides for me the most personal job satisfaction, which is that I like to listen to people, uh, engage with people, and go out uh, walking in the city to hear what's happening, uh, to understand people's problems, and what we can do here at the city attorney's office to address them. Uh, that's going to be the, the main part for me uh, that I think might be different for others Uh
0: entire years. One of the biggest roles as the city attorney is prosecuting misdemeanor crimes. Anything that's a felony goes to the county prosecutor, Dan Satterberg, or at least Dan Satterberg for the remainder of this year. He's not seeking reelection. Misdemeanor crimes go to the city level. That's just one part of your job, but certainly in the campaign, that's what the race became about. You are wanting to essentially crack down on repeat offenders and misdemeanor crime. Can you explain your position a little bit more?
4: Well, today what we're saying, uh, we're describing what's been happening for years under my predecessor, which was that cases uh, from misdemeanor crimes that are referred from Seattle police department have been going to the end of a line. uh, And that line has been growing for years to where now it's near 5,000 cases. And every one of those cases represents a victim it might be an individual person or small business owner or a large business owner, but they're all victims of misdemeanor crime within the city of Seattle. And those cases have been sitting, <clears throat> excuse me, waiting for a response uh, from this office for a long time. Uh, so starting today, we are changing that and we will no longer be putting cases to the end of that long line, we will be looking at cases uh, referred from the Seattle Police Department and make a decision whether to file charges or to put uh, the, the case towards diversion or to decline charges. We will be making our choice, our decision about that within a five working days so that we are closing that time gap from when the misdemeanor crime is committed within the city of Seattle to when we decide what we're going to do about it.
0: How does that stand up to other areas? Is, is that a fairly quick turnaround for deciding on, on criminal charges?
4: The number of cases in our backlog is substantial and is not typical. Uh, and so it is a necessary move to do. I think it's the most immediate thing we can do to positively impact public safety is to close that time gap in prosecution of a case Uh, regardless of what the decision is about it, it's harder to do do anything meaningfully the longer the case waits. If it's waiting a year, two years, or sometimes more, uh, witnesses can move away or be forgetful or frankly may not want to participate because the message has been that their case is not important. It has been put to the back of the line to wait for a long time. And today we're changing that message and we're going to close that time gap from what we do in response to that case referral from Seattle Police Department so that we are saying it does matter. And making that connection from when the crime is committed to what we will do in response to it will be a shortened time. So
0: with a backlog of, say, 5,000 cases and a making decisions on new cases within five days of the crime happening, how long do you expect it will take to clear that backlog?
4: Well, we are talking in two steps. Today is about the change of approach for going forward uh, and it's important to note that if we get a referral and it's from an ind- it involves an individual who's engaged in repeat criminal activity at the misdemeanor level in the city of Seattle and there are cases in that backlog, we will take those and include them uh, with the new case. So we will be effectively, reducing some of the backlog if there are people who are engaged in chronic repeat criminal activity here in the city of Seattle. Uh, So it's important to know that. The second thing we will be coming out uh, sometime shortly will be how we address that backlog specifically. And as you know, I've tasked former U.S. Attorney Brian Moran with an assessment of the criminal division. That's what we did in January. That's why we're doing this change now uh, to understand the operations and what has been going on uh, for these years. Uh, And that's why the decision now is made to do what we're doing today, which is to effectively shorten that time from when the misdemeanor crime is committed to what we do. It's also important to note that that closing that time gap allows us to meaningfully intervene for the person engaged in criminal activity. The longer that time uh, between when the crime is committed and we respond, there's no connection there. And we need to shorten that for both the victim, for the public and for the person that might be engaged in repeat criminal activity.
0: Do you expect this change in policy to add to more arrests, add to more criminal prosecutions and ultimately add to more people going to jail?
4: I expect it to improve public safety. And that's the first and foremost, uh, why we are doing it. It's again, closing that time gap. uh, And it is what we can do to be the most immediately impacting public safety in a positive way. It's also about me extending myself personally, which I have done and will continue to do. Towards others that are in that public safety circle, at the King County Prosecutor's Office, where we are actively uh, creating working groups on whether it's organized commercial crime, uh, again on uh, people who are engaged in regular, frequent criminal activity in the area that is uh, felony level f- for it, uh, Prosecutor King County Prosecutor's Office, uh, or whether it is involving misdemeanor crime, we will be coordinated on that, and those are operational working relationships we are establishing, as well as with others across the area in that public. Safety
0: circle. One of the big sources for a lot of this crime are these unsanctioned homeless encampments. And I know there's a lot of criticism, you know, from the left saying that. You and, and, and others in the city want to criminalize homelessness. How do you respond to that?
4: I say that victims of crime are both housed and unhoused, and it is our duty to protect all of them. And so the longer we allow organized uh, enterprise crime to exist in our area, uh, the longer we allow vulnerable people to be uh, tied up in that and used in a way that is holding them in in place uh, and not allowing there to be a change in the direction of their life and we need to step in and intervene where we can for people engaged in criminal activity again to close that time gap so it does become a place of intervention. It's also a place to disrupt criminal activity uh, so that it's allowing public safety to be enhanced. <laughs>
0: Diversion is also a big thing that your office will end up doing. You know, when you decide on charging, whether or not to charge a crime, it's not only what charges you, you you're going to file. Should this person go to some form of criminal diversion? Should you file charges at all? Uh, what what's going to be your approach?
4: Well, I look forward to my incoming criminal chief, Natalie Walton Anderson, who will be very instrumental in that. And we'll be also looking at community partners uh, who are, again, engaged in that public safety space. There's going to be a variety of tools. We need to have all of them uh, to be effective to improve public safety.
0: But clearly the diversion programs, uh, you know, whether it happens to need housing or social help or assistance for drug addiction, that sort of thing, a lot of those systems haven't been set up and, and and the resources aren't there.
4: Well, here at the city attorney's office, we are in charge of handling the prosecution of misdemeanor crime uh, so that we are providing justice because justice delayed is justice denied. As we are talking about, again, those 5000 cases in the backlog, those have been left. Uh, and we, the, the moment to intervene in uh, those people who had committed those crimes intervene in their life has been lost uh for to the length of time we're going to shorten that time so that we can be responsive for victims for the public and also for people who are engaged in in criminal activity it is a form of communication it's our obligation to understand why they are communicating in the form of committing a crime but the most important thing is to address uh that time gap to shorten it so that we're responsive uh, for the city
0: Your term got off to a bit of a rocky start with the relationship with the Seattle City Council. They've passed some resolutions demanding you turn over uh, more data and information on crimes that you prosecute and crimes that you don't. Do you feel like you have the backing of the Seattle City Council?
4: I actively reach out to everyone that's engaged in public safety. Uh, Again, it's important to make sure those formalized operational working relationships are established. I have extended myself and will continue to do so uh, because we can't do it alone here at the city attorney's office. Uh, we were out uh, with several council members, uh, Nelson and Peterson, specifically uh, members of the mayor's office and SPD on a u- university district walk uh, just last week. Uh, these are the ways that we hear what is happening in communities, understand what they are up against, and understand what our role is to help public safety on their behalf.
0: All right, Ann Davison, Seattle city attorney, thank you so much for your time.
4: Thank you. For your time.
0: Still to come, some adult supervision was needed at this week's Seattle City Council meeting when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojola. Finally, this week, the Seattle City Council needed some adult supervision on Tuesday.
4: I'm only going to respond I, by saying that that was not misinformation. That was okay. not misinformation. That was a fact. All of the Democrats who were on the council last December voted to end the hazard pay, it was Mayor Durkin who and Councilmember Swan. It's a fact I, all, that we have the longest. Can I have the clerk mute everybody? Because apparently, people can't behave. Can you, can you please times, mute it. I'm still proud to clerk, continue to do. please mute it mute everybody.
0: That's from this week's meeting in which the council was debating a non-binding resolution in defense of unionizing Starbucks workers. As you could hear, two of the most left-wing members of the council, Shama Sawant and Teresa Mosqueda, got off track arguing over hazard pay for grocery workers. Council President Deborah Juarez was forced to mute everyone's mics because the two continued to talk over each other.
4: So I did that because I don't want this to turn into what it just happened. Again, members are reminded that it's never an order to use insults in debate. It is members who will confine their remarks to the merits of the pending question not use former examples of how people may or may not have voted in the past.
0: Eventually, the council passed the resolution supporting Starbucks workers by a vote of 6 to nothing. As with many resolutions coming out of Seattle City Hall, this one has no force or effect of law. It simply states that the council supports what the workers are trying to do, something newly elected council member Sarah Nelson pointed out.
4: I was elected to work with my colleagues on the issues we know are priorities for the people of Seattle. Homelessness police reform, public safety, housing affordability, basic services, and so on. I was not elected to take votes on issues that fall beyond the purview of city business. And I believe that a vote on Resolution 32041 would be just merely symbolic because this is an external labor issue, and we have no authority over Starbucks or their employees.
0: Council members Nelson and Peterson abstained from the vote, Councilwoman Lisa Herbal did not attend the meeting. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Northwest News This Week and Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening and have a good week.